0: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, political scientist Barbara Walter, author of the book How Civil Wars Start, examines the warning signs that often precede civil wars.
1: The groups that tend to start these wars are not the weakest groups. They're not the poorest groups. They're not immigrant groups. Um, They're not the most um, uh, discriminated against. Uh, The groups that tend to start these wars are the groups that had once been politically dominant.
0: She's interviewed by Smith College Middle East Studies Chair Stephen Heidemann.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com/tech. All lowercase. That's Shopify.com/tech.
0: Welcome, Barbara Walter. It's a pleasure to have the chance to talk with you today your uh, book has generated uh, an astonishing national debate about where we are as a country today during a moment of quite extraordinary polarization and and division. And in the book, you advance this this quite controversial claim that the U.S. is closer to civil war than many of us would like to think or, or believe. And... What I thought it would make sense to do as we get launched is give you a chance to simply lay out what your argument is in broad terms, and, and then we can, we can dig into bits and pieces of it as we, as we go along.
1: Yeah. So my argument comes from studying civil wars for the last thirty years. Um, I've looked at um, all regions, all countries that have experienced civil wars since the end of World War II, and there have been over two hundred of them. And one of the things that we've learned is that they tend to um, they tend to break out in similar ways, and, and the same factors emerge in the in the lead up to these wars, no ma- matter where they happen. And then in 2017, I was invited to serve on um, the U.S. government's task force. They have a task force called the Political Instability Task Force, and I served on that task force until the end of last year. And the goal of that task force was to um, come up with a predictive model to try to predict where around the world countries would experience instability and political violence. And so there are a bunch of experts on civil wars like myself, uh, political scientists, anthropologists, um, sociologists, and then there were a bunch of data analysts who were in charge of the model. And the experts on, on violence... Um, were asked about the factors that they, they thought might put countries at greater vis- risk of violence. And, and we put those factors into this model. So that included things like poverty. It included um, measures of income inequality, measures of how ethnically diverse a country was, how big it was, how, how much rough terrain a country had. Um, we put over 30 different variables into this model. And to our great surprise, only two came out highly predictive. Um, We weren't expecting that. The first was um, a measure called anocracy, and anocracy is just a fancy term for a country whose government is a partial democracy. Um, it's neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic. It's something in between. So you could think of it as, for example, a country has free and fair elections. Everybody's allowed, allowed to vote. Um, A new president is elected, but that president, once in office, doesn't have many checks and balances on his or her power. So you have elements of democracy, the free and fair elections, and you have elements of sort of authoritarian rule, um, a, a very powerful president. The second factor was um, whether a country's um, citizens were organized politically, not around ideology, um, not the left, the right, the issues relevant to to each of those camps, but around identity, racial, ethnic, or religious identity, and whether those parties became um, predatory. Um, Their goal was to get an office, not to share power, but to stay in power. So again, I'm on this task force. We are only looking at countries outside the United States. In fact, we were not allowed to look at the United States, talk about the United States, and early on it didn't occur to us to even ever think about the United States. But then, as time is going on, I'm looking at the United States, I'm looking at my own country, and I'm realizing that these two factors are, in fact, emerging here, and and they've been emerging at a surprisingly fast rate.
0: Yeah, we have certainly seen an, an increase in, in violence, political violence, in the United States over the past several years. And... And a lot of the debate around your book seemed to surface in particular on the anniversary of the January 6th insurgency here in Washington, and that's not a surprise. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of, of terms that have been applied to actors who engage in violence. It's, it's seen yeah. as a form of insurgency. <laughs> it's seen as a form of terrorism. What do you think talking about these trends in terms of civil war helps us to see that we might not otherwise focus on to the same degree?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think one of the reasons why it's so hard for most Americans to conceive of a second civil war here, why this message took so long to resonate with the American public, is because they're thinking about an 1860 version of a civil war. They're thinking about all those images that they have of two armies meeting on a big battlefield. They each have uniforms, they're dragging cannons, um, they're engaging each other. Um, And that's just not the type of civil war that's going to happen here. Um, And, in fact, that's not really the type of civil, modern civil war that you tend to see anymore. Um, The modern civil wars that we see, especially against governments with militaries that are very strong, like the united states or you know think about um the provisional ira fighting um uh the british government and the british military big powerful military or think about hamas um, fighting the israeli government whose military is also extremely strong. So in those situations, um, the type of civil war is more of an insurgency. It tends to be very decentralized, and decentralized on purpose, um, fought by multiple different militia groups, paramilitary groups. And sometimes they're working together, and sometimes they're actually competing with each other. Um, The last thing they want to do is engage soldiers and the military. Um, If they do that, it's a battle that they cannot win. And so they turn to unconventional methods, um, domestic terrorism, where they're targeting civilians, um, or they're targeting infrastructure, or they're targeting opposition leaders. or, or judges, perhaps, who are who are not sympathetic to their cause, um, or they're using uh, uh, guerrilla warfare, where you have you know bombs set up, set off in particular places, um, hit-and-run attacks. Those are the types of civil wars that we're seeing today. And if the United States has a civil war, that's what we're likely to see here. Mm-hmm.
0: Now you mentioned that countries that fall into this category of regime type called anocracy, this intermediate category, neither yeah. full democracy nor full autocracy, that those are the cases that are most vulnerable to this <coughs> descent into into violence, into this new form of civil war you've you've described. Yeah. What is it about anocracies that make <laughs> them so vulnerable?
1: Yeah so um, the relationship that we see is actually called an, an inverted u shape um, if you if if you look at at full autocracies um, on on the left side um, of the axis and full democracies on the right side of the axis both of those types of governments rarely experience civil war all of the civil war happens in the middle. And so it has this inverted U-shape relationship between the type of political regime and the risk of violence. And so the question is, why is that the case? Um, Full democracies, strong liberal democracies, don't tend to experience civil war because their citizens are generally pretty happy. They don't have a lot of grievances. And even if some groups in those um, democracies have grievances, there are conventional political ways to address them. They don't have to turn to violence because they have alternate means to try to effect change. If you look at full autocracies, so <clears throat> think, about, um, think about North Korea. These are the most autocratic countries. Saudi Arabia, um, uh, Iran. Those tend not to experience civil wars, not because the people are 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 happy. They're they're not. It's because they have no opportunity to rebel, even if they wanted to try to um, mobilize uh, for to to challenge the government. The those countries tend to be quite good at repressing dissent. And so you never see re- or rarely see um, uh, insurgencies emerge. But the governments in the middle, these inocracies, they, they're not fully democratic. So citizens aren't fully satisfied with these regimes. They would like to see more democracy. Um, and so you know they're they're not um, com- they're they're n- not complacent. That's not the word. Um, you know they're not super happy with these regimes, but they're also weak regimes. These are often regimes that are in transition. Um, leadership is changing more rapidly. Um, institutions are breaking down or are being broken down. And so the repressive arm of the state in these um, anocracies, in order to repress dissent that would emerge because people are unhappy with elements of the government, that doesn't exist to the same extent. So you have both groups who are unhappy with the status quo. and they also have the opportunity to organize um resistance to a government that at that point is often relatively weak.
0: Yeah, so you have grievances, you have opportunity and you have yeah. limited capacity to respond on on the part of a exactly. of a government that may be in flux, that may be fluid. Exactly. Uh, it, it's the case of course that that some countries that are consolidated autocracies do experience civil war. Some of the examples in your book Syria mm-hmm. for example is clearly a consolidated autocracy and yet experienced uh, civil war, uh, closer to the 1860 variety than the type that, yeah. you're, that you're describing. But, but what is it about the United States in particular? You've mentioned that there's been a shift in where the U.S. stands on the, on the rankings that define whether a country is a democracy, anocracy, uh, anocracy or, or autocracy. But, but what is it about the United States that puts us in that dangerous yeah. category?
1: Yeah. So the same measure that the task force uses to measure anocracy, um, it's a measure that is was developed by a nonprofit organization in Virginia called the Center for Systemic Peace. And every year they assign uh, a number to every country um, related to this anocracy variable. Um, and uh, the United States, it's, it's a scale that goes from negative 10, most autocratic type of government, to positive 10, most democratic type of government. For a very long time, the United States was at positive 10. Um, And in 2016, uh, the Center for Systemic Peace downgraded the United States to positive eight. And it did this in part because international election monitors who were monitoring the 2016 election deemed it free but not entirely fair. In, In 2019, it downgraded the U.S. Um, the U.S.'s democracy score once again to plus 7. And it did this as a result of the executive branch um, refusing to respond to subpoenas by the legislative branch. And here in the United States, the biggest check on executive power is is Congress and if if the president doesn't respond to this tool of Congress to try to keep um, uh, presidential behavior in line, then that clearly indicates that the president is much more powerful than Congress. Um, and and that is not how our system was originally designed. Um, we were not supposed to have what Arthur Schlesinger, a, a few years back, called an imperial president. Um, but we now have a, an executive branch that is significantly more powerful than all the other branches. And then by the end of Trump's presidency, um, the the center downgraded the US democracy to plus five, um, negative five to plus five is the anocracy zone, and that put the the United States in that zone for the first time since 1800. So here I am, I'm, I'm watching. Um, U.S. democracy decline, I see it go towards the middle zone. I understand that um, that this is not a, a, a neutral um, situation, that the middle zone is where a lot of instability and violence happens. And then of course I'm thinking about that second factor, um, you know, does the U.S. have ethnic factions or an ethnic faction? And um, by the definition that the Center for Systemic Peace uses, um, do we have parties or a political party that is based predominantly around um, uh, ethnic, religious, or or racial identity, and is it predatory? Uh, The answer is yes, we do now have that. As late as 2008, um, white voters were almost equally split between the Democratic and the Republican Party. That shifted when Obama was elected and that 's when white the white working class whose traditional ideological home was in the Democratic party, they began shifting. Towards the Republican Party, and today the Republican Party is ninety percent white, and not only is it catering almost exclusively to just one racial group and and religious group here in the United states <clears throat> but but its intent is is to is to attempt to gain power um, using almost any means A- and that is in essence um, predatory
0: yeah. That, that has some interesting implications that I hope we can come back to later. But I wanted to stick with this anocracy theme for a moment and, and yeah. where the US falls on, on that spectrum. The data can sometimes be contradictory. There are a number of different mm-hmm. indexes of the quality of democracy, yeah. and you mentioned some of them in the book. Uh, yeah. Freedom House issues one that's, that's widely used and so does another organization based in Europe called V-DEM. Yeah. Neither of yeah. those indices have drawn quite as stark uh, a conclusion about yeah. the position of the U.S. as as yeah. the Polity Index has. Um, and in addition, this year I, I happened to check just this morning, uh, the U.S. is back up to plus eight on on, yeah. on the Polity Index. So you know, I'd be interested in in, in yeah. how you read these these differences. And, and at the same time, if I can just for a minute longer, we, we, we continue to see very, very troubling indicators about uh, violence trends in yeah. the United States and the potential for violence, even as the polity score has gone up. For example, a recent political violence yeah. database, the ACLED database, you, you may know it just yeah, issued a report on, on the anniversary of the January 6th yeah. uprising that said that pro-Trump demonstrations continue post-presidency and are more likely to be armed, uh, and that armed pro-Trump demonstrations disproportionately come to legislative grounds. So, you know, we, we have so much that we need to take into account in thinking about where we are. How do you make sense of this yeah. mass of data that you have to sort yeah. through?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to answer the first two questions first, which was, um, you know, we have these different data sets and the U.S. was just upgraded to plus eight. Um, And then if we could, you know, turn to the the question about violence after that, that would be helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's at least well, I'm going to say there's four major data sets that measure democracy. There's the polity data set, which comes from the center for systemic peace, and that's the one uh, that most conflict scholars use. It's been around the longest. It looks at the the greatest number of, of countries. Um, it looks at both autocracies and democracies. It looks at all countries. Um, uh, there's the Freedom House data set that you talked about. There's the VDEM data set that's run out of um, Sweden, um, and that's short for Varieties of Democracy data set. Um, there's a data set run by the Economist Intelligence U- uh, Unit. Um, and there's actually a fifth data set by um, the International Institute. It's IDEA for democracy, democracy and Electoral Assistance, Accountability, something like that. And the way to think about those data sets is that they all measure democracy in slightly different ways. Or another way to look at it is they're all interested in different aspects of democracy. And so that's what they tend to focus on. Just to give you an example, Freedom House is really interested in individual rights and freedoms that's where they they hone in on they're interested in um, how good is freedom of the press freedom of religion freedom of speech um, in every country around the world and so that's what they are measuring and by those measures the u.s has declined in some elements um, but but has actually remained relatively strong the polity data set out of the center for systemic peace that's really interested in um, the institutions of democracy, the checks and balances. Um, it looks very carefully at, you know, executive constraints. Um, so it's, it, and it kind of comes from a theory that you have for what you think is most important in a polity. Um, do you think what's most important is individual rights and freedoms? Then that's what you, your organization, is going to focus on. If you think what's most important is, is is the strength of the institutions. So no matter who comes to power, whether it's a strong man or a a true Democrat, um, that person will be constrained by the institutions. Then you focus on institutions. And that's what the Center for Systemic Peace with this polity variable focuses on. Um, and then, you know, the other one, varieties of democracy, it's really interested in, in all the different demo- types of democracies we have out there, and there's myriad types, um, and it looks to see um, about which of the features of the, the many, many features of different types of democracies, um, how, how they're doing across countries. Yeah. I don't know why the task force um, used the Center for Systemic Pieces, and, and I wasn't there when, when the model was first, first crafted. It could be that they included measures from, from all of the, the data sets that existed at the time on democracy. It could be that they included measures of, of, from Freedom House the the measure that came out significant was this polity measure this anocracy variable and so that suggests that it's something about the institutions that that really put a country at risk and and this gets to what i was talking about earlier um, you know we think anocracies are often um, just pr- a proxy for a weak a weak unstable government um, and it's what it's weak because the institutions are weak uh, it's weak because the institutions are not really constraining um, the power of, of the executive and um, and and that is the measure that that was most predictive um, yeah so yeah. and then the plus your second question which was uh, the US was was just upgraded to plus eight um, the Center for systemic peace updated it's Um, its data. It does this um, every year. Um, It did it the first week of January this year, looking back on 2021. And the U.S. was upgraded from a plus five to a plus eight um, as a result of the peaceful transfer of power to the Biden administration. And as a result of the Biden administration. adhering to the rule of law. Um, So that takes us out of the anocracy zone. But again, you know, we've seen how quickly actually we can backslide. And and we know, for example, that Trump would very much like to come to power. We we know that the many in the Republican Party support him. And if not him, someone who will be very much like him. And and of course, um, you know his his goal is to get back into power and and to make it more difficult um, for the opposition uh, to 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 win future elections mm-hmm. and make it more difficult for the results of those elections to actually be implemented so yeah.
0: Right, well, mentioning the the possibility uh, of a return to power of Donald Trump, I think reminds us that there are multiple pathways that the u s could follow toward equally uh, depressing outcomes. Yes. Uh, one of which might involve the kind of escalation in violence that you focus on in the book, but the other could happen through uh, electoral outcomes, through the the capture of institutions by a political party uh, whose commitment to democracy is is very very much in question. And and in fact, some of the pushback that you've received about the argument is that the success that right-wing Republicans have had in capturing political institutions at the local and state level, in changing the rules of the game around the management and supervision of elections, gerrymandering political districts to prevent the opposition from gaining power, that this is a pathway that is far more likely uh, to be the one that could move the U.S., uh, well, out of the democracy range within a Polity score, but without the kind of, of violence that you've you've speculated about in the book. What's your sense about these alternative yeah. pathways, and and why why did you decide to put so much emphasis on the more violent of those pathways?
1: <laughs> well, it's different types of violence, right? So. Um, It is true that um, if the Republicans were able to dismantle our democracy, if they were able really to create a one-party state where Republicans are always in power and there's really no way for the opposition to compete effectively anymore, um, um, if we did become uh, an autocratic regime, Um, We might still hold elections, but it would really have no effect on the outcome. Singapore does that. Um, um, If that were to happen, we probably wouldn't have a civil war, but we would have minority rule with a majority of the citizens deeply, deeply, deeply unhappy. And like other autocratic regimes that are able to avoid... Outright civil war, the way they do this is with heavy heavy repression um, and so there's a different type of state sponsored violence that occurs um, and again, these countries have are at lower risk of, of war, but when war does happen, it is explosive it is it is it is brutal and and um, you know that is that is not a better path to go down over the long term.
0: No, I, I, I certainly I certainly agree with that. Uh, in, in fact, I I wondered at times in in reading your book, which emphasizes <laughs> appropriately, I think, the role of of the right in the United States as as yeah. a driver of extremism and, and potential violence, actual violence. It, you do also reference groups on the left that that you see as as. playing playing something of a similar role. You talk a little bit about Antifa. You talk a little bit about some other movements that have begun to take up arms uh, on the grounds of self-defense against threats from the right. Are there conditions, perhaps conditions, in which the right captures institutions and moves the country toward a single-party regime in which you could imagine that the reaction a violent reaction would actually originate among those who oppose that kind of system?
1: Absolutely. So I guess the the way I, well, when you look at the cases um, historically, uh, and you especially look at the ethnic civil wars, one of the things that we've learned is that the groups that tend to start these wars are not the weakest groups. They're not the poorest groups. They're not immigrant groups. Um, they're not the most Um, uh, discriminated against. Uh, The groups that tend to start these wars are the groups that had once been politically dominant, um, but are either in decline or they anticipate that they will lose power in the system in the future. <clears throat> they're the ones who have this deep sense of resentment. They're the ones who will, will try all sorts of dirty tactics to try to maintain their hold on power. One of those dirty tactics would be to dismantle the democracy and put themselves in power. <clears throat> and of course, once they do that, the goal is to exclude everybody else. And so when we look at, at civil wars as well, it is also the politically excluded groups that will eventually Organized so. <clears throat> so, if, for example, um, and you see this already today, um, if if the Republicans lose the 2024 elections, um, the Republican voters are are going to believe that it was stolen again. It will only confirm their belief that the current system is illegitimate and is and is structured against them and it will push more of them into the hands of of violent extremists in their group who have been telling them <clears throat> excuse me who have been telling them that violence is the only way for them to gain back control if they are successful at doing that and they then shut up out a majority of Americans from power then that the left is going to have incentives to mobilize as well um and and so so But I I don't think the left is is going to start this, um, in part because time is on their side, given the current system. Um, They know that demographically they they will be the majority by 2045. All they have to do is wait, and they will have the votes um, to to dominate the system. Um, And so right now they have no incentives to start a war, whereas um, you know, a segment of the white population who is deeply, deeply concerned about this demographic transition, who sees this as an existential threat, time is not on their side. And so that's why I think they would be the ones to initiate war first.
0: Yeah, I, I I'm, I, I think that that's an important message, because we often get what I personally view as false equivalencies drawn between groups that I, I think are are small and, and not terribly meaningful in terms of their capacity yeah. to damage the system. Groups like Antifa, for example, which has become a favorite um, stalking horse for the right, and <coughs> and far more threatening, far more capable and, and uh, violent groups on, on the right. And, and so I, I think it is important to, to accentuate the distinctions between these two camps yes. in, in a polarized yes. political system, even under polarization, not all yes. actors have the same uh, proclivity or incentive to engage yes. to engage in violence. And I, I think that's important um, to note. You know, one of the things that you review in the book that I think is quite interesting uh, beyond the general conditions that that leave us concerned about the prospects of civil war is what some of the specific conditions are, what some of the specific triggers might be that could induce this majority yeah. of those on the right who, who are themselves probably unsettled by what they see as the yes. extremists in their ranks and, yeah. and who are not prepared to go that extra step and participate in, in any kind of, of organized violence. What it would take to reach a a tipping point where some kind of cascade could occur that would draw many, many more of those who are unhappy with the system from the right into the ranks of those who are willing to use violence. And it would be useful to to hear you talk a bit about what some of those specific triggers might be.
1: Yeah. So I have a chapter in the the book about these triggers, and it's called When Hope is Lost. and I think that really gets at the trigger. Countries that are anocracies and that have ethnic factions often are like that for many, many years. Um, and so having those two underlying conditions doesn't explain the timing of the outbreak of civil war. If those conditions exist year after year, then <clears throat> why does it happen in 20, 20, you know, 48, and not in 2022? And and again, you know the cases that, that um, you know the civil wars that have happened um, historically really tell us um, about what the triggers tend to be, and it tends to be, as I said, when people lose hope, and they tend to lose hope uh, at least in two ways. One, if if they're in a democracy, and if they keep losing elections. Um, and and really a loss in election is just a, a is hard evidence to your average citizen that their party can't win their party is shut out of power um <clears throat> and um and I do think the 2020 elections, for example, were devastating to the Republicans. They, they invested heavily in a ground game. They turned out the vote. They did everything they could to get as many Republicans to the polls as they could, and they still lost by almost 8 million votes. This tells them very clearly that they don't have the votes to compete in this system. And And again, when you start to have Republican leaders perpetuate this lie that that the election was stolen from them that <clears throat> that the system is rigged against them people will believe that especially if every media outlet that they that they tap into is telling them the same thing they will believe that and of course there's an incentive for their leadership to do that because they want their people to lose hope in this current system because they don't want this current system to continue to exist so that is one trigger it's a series of losses at at uh, in elections and then the second trigger um, which we haven't seen here yet but i could see this happening is if that group decides um, it's going to protest Um, it's going to, um, well, maybe we have seen a little bit of this. It's going to go out in the street and peacefully protest, um, you know, you could argue that the 2017 Charlottesville rally um, was a peaceful protest by the far right demanding change. Um, and if those protests have no effect, if you don't see any change as a result of those protests, if <clears throat> if you don't see, um, you know, for example, the, the Charlottesville um, protesters wanted... Um, you know, they basically want an end to immigration. They wanted the the wall to be built. Um, they're not seeing that. Their chance where we will not be replaced, we will not be replaced. Um, and instead, what happened is they lost their jobs. Their their employers saw videos of them on TV and fired them. The FBI began to um, you know infiltrate their groups and question them, and some of them were arrested. Um, they got deplatformed from social media. So um, here they were. Um, doing what they thought was, was working within the system. They're not using violence. Um, they're protesting. And it's their right to protest. And, and, and not only did nothing happen, but, but personally, they were, they were harmed as a result. And, and these are the types of events that, that turn um, people away from nonviolent means and, and push them into the hands of the more violent extremists in their
0: group. Well, yeah, I, I guess I'd say that, that those who participated in Charlottesville and, and those who suffered the consequences of their actions there had crossed the line from what most would view as legitimate protest into something else, uh, and, and that they, they, they represent a, a very, very small minority. But your bigger issue about the 2020 elections as a, a demonstration yeah. to mainstream Republicans that despite all of their efforts, they they failed to to reelect Donald Trump, is is a very interesting example as well because on so many levels Republicans succeeded in 2020, yeah. and and we have this this irony around the big lie in which Republicans who won their own races are arguing that the elections they participated in were fraudulent and and. Uh, Carried out without without integrity and 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 so we we have to think uh, in my view at least about how hopelessness is manufactured and reproduced and disseminated and you do talk a bit about social media in the book and Mm -hmm. and it would be it, it would be interesting I think to reflect a bit on the extent to which this condition of hopelessness which. Which I, I agree with you completely can be an extraordinarily powerful motivator to participate in extremist forms of politics how how that that perception is constructed and sustained through social media and through through uh traditional media as well, through television networks that yeah. that are so actively engaged in in creating the impression of hopelessness
1: yeah. So I talk in the book about um, people I, uh, that political scientists call ethnic entrepreneurs. Ethnic entrepreneurs are oftentimes politicians, but they could be media titans. They could be business leaders. These are individuals who recognize that if they could somehow um, create a sense of threat, uh, create a sense of victimhood um, amongst an ethnic or a racial group, um, and convince them that they're under threat and need to band together, and not just band together, but they need to band together under the leadership of an ethnic entrepreneur, that those citizens will follow those e- ethnic entre- entrepreneurs no matter what. Slobodan Milosevic was was a really a perfect example of this. He was um, a communist during the Soviet era, In in Yugoslavia, he was a member of the Communist Party. He 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 was in power as a result, and then the Soviet Union disseminates, and Yugoslavs quickly decide that they want to create a, a democracy in their country, and Milosevic knows he wants to keep power, he wants to stay in power, but he also knows that Yugoslavs don't like communists, and they know that he's a communist. And if he runs as a communist, they'll never vote for him. And he start, he's a very savvy, he was a very savvy um, strategic person, and he was thinking about, you know, how could he get enough votes to get, get in power? And he realized that Serbs were the biggest ethnic group in Yugoslavia at the time, and he was an ethnic Serb. And so he started to um, just disseminate this propaganda on, on state radio, on state TV. He crafted this this consistent narrative that he just pounded into the heads of Serbs that, that Serbs had to band together. If they didn't band together, the Croats were going to do it. And in fact, the Croats were doing it. And if the Croats got into power, they would throw Serbs out of, out of their jobs, out of government, out of the military. And in fact, they might go as far as what some of them did in World War II, which was to slaughter Serbs. And it was a very, very effective strategy in this time of uncertainty when, when Yugoslavia was an anocracy, when things were changing very quickly, when their new government was really quite weak. Um Serbs didn't really know who to trust. Um there is a deep element of insecurity. And they gathered behind Milosevic and, and he was catapulted back into into power. And so you see that happening um, where where capturing the media is really, really important for for elites. Who want political power? It's really important for them um, to to capture the narrative in order to gain the support of average citizens. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, you know, you can do this through traditional television, through cable, um, through local news. But social media is is really unbelievably powerful, and it's really really powerful. Um, not only because you can place whatever material you want on social media, but more importantly because the recommendation engines, the algorithms um, choose the most incendiary uh, material, the most the most the, 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 the material that triggers um, a, a fight and flight response, fear, insecurity, hate. it takes, those pieces of information, that content, and it magnifies it, it disseminates it wildly. Um, And the reason it it disproportionately favors that type of content is because the business model um, for social media companies is to keep people engaged on their cell phones and on their devices as long as possible. And they have now figured out that the material that keeps people engaged the longest is the more incendiary one a uh, type of material? It's the it's the material that triggers the, the you know the the, um, the you know the oldest parts of our, our brain, the fight and flight response. Um, you know, people not only read that at, at you know four times more than than calming uh, I- information, but they share it um, significantly more than um, than material that's um, that's right. that's you know more positive.
0: Right. And one of the other things exposure to social media seems to cultivate, unfortunately, is a very deep resistance to the facts, and, and we see that yeah. over and over again. We have this sense of, of being threatened, of being at risk, of, of vulnerability on the part of, uh, of a constituency within the United States, at least, that continues to hold uh, a dominant share of political, economic, social, yeah. and cultural power. <clears throat> And so there's the irony that that social media um, creates this sort of insular alternative universe in which in which facts about about the the, the privileged status of those who are yeah. being mobilized against uh, our democracy uh, becomes almost impossible to to communicate and and penetrate, and and you know that that puts an interesting spin on this question of of the downgrading in social economic status, political status yeah. of, of communities that, that are the constituencies for these political, for these ethnic uh, identity entrepreneurs. Um, because it, it, it seems as if uh, economic factors, the, the extent to yeah. which these communities have actually, in their own view at least, slipped uh, on socioeconomic grounds, um, in your book, you actually tend to discount the importance of economic yeah. factors, and and so we have this we have this role of of a community a a, a a social group that feels it's losing status that its 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 position in society is at risk, and yet and yet at the same time, your sense is, and I know it's it's based on the data you use, but your sense is that economic factors aren't especially important in shaping those perceptions. Why is that?
1: So we don't exactly know. Early quantitative studies on the the causes of civil war Found poverty significantly related to the outbreak of civil war again and again and again. So, all of us thought, well, it, you know, it's the poor countries that tend to experience civil war. And then, as we collected more and better data, as we included um, more, uh, more nuanced variables in our models, um, especially related to the quality of governance, what we found was that when you put in uh, measures of the rule of law for example or you know how strong the rule of law is in a country or a, a measure of of how competitive is the political system if you included these measures of good governance the poverty vali- variable was no longer significant and that was a surprise and we suspect that the reason the poverty va- variable dropped out was because p- poverty Poor countries often have bad governments, um, and and the governments aren't delivering services. They're, they're, the economy isn't flourishing in those countries because the government is poor and there's high levels of corruption, and and so um, it's it's not poverty per se that's driving people to rebel. It's 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 the the quality of the government that's that's driving people to rebel. Mm. Um, and and then, you know, people have, there have been so many studies to try to understand the role of economic variables. Income inequality, um, there's, there's so many studies, and, and the results are mixed. Um, <clears throat> and in fact, in, in one of the um, big studies that was done by uh, James Fearon, who's a professor at Stanford, um, he actually found that um, there was an inverse relationship between uh, income inequality. Um, um, and and civil war, that the the lower um, the level of income inequality in a country, the higher the risk of civil war. So so I don't talk a lot about the economic variables because either they haven't been significant or we have these mixed results, um, and it's not really clear at this point in time what conclusion to draw from that. Right. But what we do know, and, and these are more recent studies, um, is that if you have a downgraded group, so a group that is politically losing power or has lost power, and they then suffer an economic crisis that compounds that loss, that that makes those groups more likely to organize and turn to violence. So there does seem to be a compounding effect um, when you add you know, economic loss to the equation.
0: Yeah, that, that narrative fits quite well in the Middle East in the protest that broke out in 2011 for example where we know from uh, interviewing and data that it was not the rural poor who yeah. were the early risers yeah. in those protests it it was the urban middle class which had experienced yes. uh, downward social mobility over the yes. the preceding decade and and you talk a lot you emphasize very heavily rural urban divides and yes. and the the difference between the outlook the culture the lifestyle the political preferences of those in cosmopolitan cities which are typically better off and those in the countryside who have fewer economic opportunities fewer opportunities for upward mobility that's a that's a global condition apparently but does it manifest itself in distinctive ways in the u.s
1: oh that's a good question does it manifest itself in distinctive ways in some ways, what we see here is more troubling <clears throat> i you know in the in the book I call a I, I i talk about super factions um so factions that are not only based on ethnicity but are also based on religion and are also based on a geographic uh, an urban rural split so when you have when you have parties really splitting along all three of these lines where one is is white Christian, uh, predominantly rural, and one is is non-white, um, a mix of religions, and predominantly urban. Um, that that tends to be particularly com- combustible, and and really the mechanism that under underlies um, the 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 radicalization of, of one of these groups is resentment. Um, it's resentment at declining status. It's it's it's, it's watching, um, you know, coastal elites in in urban areas, or or you know, worse yet, you see, you know, immigrants coming from from China or India, for example, getting very high paying jobs, living the American dream that you and your your children are not living, and 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 also. Seeing that you are no longer able to compete in this new economy and and that you have no chance to compete, and it, it creates this deep sense of resentment and anger um, and, and that can translate into into a rejection of this system and and support for more extreme uh, extreme uh, groups.
0: Yeah, and it seems to me as well that institutions like the electoral college, for example, that amplify Yes. rural votes and rural constituencies uh, give those kinds of resentments uh, added uh, added leverage within the electoral yes. system too yes you yep. know we have about um, eight or nine minutes left and i i wanted to make sure we took the time to to talk with you about some of your thoughts uh, relating to how to stop civil wars the 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 yeah. book is called How They Start, but how we can how we can how we can keep them from happening. Yeah. So so let's talk a bit about that yeah. as well.
1: So the big picture is this: on the task force, we know that countries that have these two um, factors that are anocracies, that are partial democracies with ethnic factions, are at about a four percent annual risk of civil war. That seems small, but it's not. Um, Every year that those conditions continue to exist, every year that the government doesn't strengthen its democracy, um, every year that, <clears throat> that an ethnic faction doubles down on, on, on racial politics, um, the risk increases. So that after 30 years, the risk of, of political violence in a country with those two features is over 100%. It's very similar to the risk of smoking. You know, I I can if I started smoking today, my risk of dying of lung cancer or a related disease um, would be very small. Um, But if I continue to smoke for ten years, twenty years, thirty years, fifty years, my my risk of dying of something related to smoking would be quite high. And so, what's I think so valuable about um, in knowing these two factors um, is that it gives us time to turn things around. Um, it tells us we're, we're you know we're not on the precipice about to fall over. Um, but if we continue um, in this space, if we continue on this path, um, or you know if we if if it actually gets worse, um, then the risk will just continue to increase until eventually it will happen. Um, and so what do you do about it? You know, one get the word. Out, <laughs> which seems simple, but but until recently it was not simple. Uh, you know, I've talked to so many people who have lived through civil wars in places like Sarajevo and Kiev and in Baghdad, and they all say the same thing. <clears throat> they say they they say that they didn't see it coming. Um, they were just going about their daily business. Yeah, there was. They would hear about an attack somewhere on the other side of the city. <clears throat> or they would hear maybe about, you know, a paramilitary group organizing some way, somewhere, you know, in a rural area. Um, but they didn't either take it seriously or they thought it was an isolated, unimportant fact. And and they they just kept going to their jobs and taking care of their families. And then suddenly it was too late and war had broken out. And so... So just getting the word out and making people aware that there is a cancer growing in our midst, um, and and of course the far right, especially violent extremist groups, um, they they would they they want the element of surprise. They they want to be able to organize um, um, in the shadows. They don't want people to to know so that they have time to to plan. Um, a strategy, and an, and an attack. Um, uh, and so getting the word out and having pe- not only American citizens but, but our politicians aware of it is very important. Um, you know, the second thing is, is regulate social media. It's probably the easiest thing we could do. And I'm not talking about, uh, about regulating content. Let people put whatever information they want on the web, but don't allow the, the big social media... Um, companies to design algorithms that disseminate the most divisive, the most hate-filled material because it clearly is dividing um, our society and it clearly is leading to a a rise of of, um, ethnic uh, nationalism and, and extremism. And then, you know, um the third is um you know strengthen strengthen our democracy. Full liberal democracies don't tend to experience civil wars. If we have a strong democracy, which we do not have currently, um we will not have to worry about this anymore.
0: Yeah, and there are so many uh, other topics I'd love to to talk about with you, including what that recommendation implies about U.S. democracy promotion policy, whether yeah. we should be encouraging countries to transition around the world if it means moving through a stage of anocracy, yeah. um, what it implies about President Biden's agenda to try to strengthen democracy in the United States. But, but I wanted to close, Barbara, by by recalling how you ended the book, which was with a, a very moving account of a discussion you <clears throat> had with your, with your husband. Uh, yeah. about whether the U.S. had actually arrived at a point that might make it necessary to think about, uh, about an alternative, about whether yeah. it was time to leave the U.S. Uh, and when you, when you mention the element of surprise and the uncertainty about where things might be headed and not really knowing whether we've reached a tipping point, all of those are, are factors that I think have shaped similar kinds of conversations around a lot of dining room tables. <laughs> you you concluded that yeah. uh, you're you're gonna stay. You're you're here yeah. and and you're gonna stay. And I just wonder if if you could you could speak to that for a moment because yeah. I, I found it very very uh, compelling.
1: Yeah. Um. So my parents are immigrants. My husband's an immigrant. My sister-in-law is an immigrant. We are an immigrant. Family, um, we have the luxury of having multiple different passports as a result, and um, <clears throat> you know i 've studied conflict my whole life i 've traveled to conflict areas i 'm used to thinking about in the book I call it plan B okay if something bad happens while we 're here, what do we do um, and We started thinking about that here after the the two thousand and twenty elections. Uh, when it looked like um, Trump was going to uh, make a push to try to um, overturn them, and we had a long discussion, and I, we, both my husband and I, we just couldn't conceive of, of leaving. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to get, ooh, I'm going to get teary. I, we love this country; um, it is where we want to be. Uh, we love its diversity um it is it is going to be the first big democracy to go through this transition from white majority rule to white minority rule but other other white countries are going to follow us and they're going to have to go through it as well and so the u.s is going to be a model for how to do this and and you know we are going to do everything that we can to help with this transition, show the world how you can come through it and be better on the other end. And, and we're just gonna stay and, and we're going to, to fight with words and with, with research and with data.
0: Well, the good news, Barbara, is that you're not alone. There are many of us who share those sentiments and, and we will be working together toward, toward the same end. Thank you very, very much. It's been wonderful to have this chance to talk with you and to learn a bit more about your book yeah. and, and your thinking about about where the United States is is headed in the coming years. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best selling authors. In each episode we report on bestseller lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.